0: Hi, this is Elliot Fishman and welcome to our latest talk. It's cystic pancreatic lesions, what you need to know. And we all know that pancreatic cystic lesions are one of the most challenging things we see these days. Cystic pancreatic lesions are common and range anywhere from pseudocysts, typically associated with pancreatitis, obviously, to IPMNs, the challenge of these incidentally detected lesions that potentially can be malignant over time benign lesions like cirrhosis adenomas that can be left alone to mucinous cystic neoplasms which are all considered premalignant and need to be resected to cystic neuroendocrine tumors to spend tumors more common in young patients and can be cystic and solid we know that up to five percent of adults have small incidental pancreatic lesions seen on ct If you go on MR data, anywhere between 20 and 50%, which means that everybody has a cyst if you have a good imagination. Most of these incidental lesions are not important. They're typically small cysts or IPMNs, and 97% of IPMNs behave benign. It's the 3% that can become malignant over time, and our challenge is trying to figure out that 3%. I'm not gonna speak about it in this talk, but that's something we're using AI for. Hopefully AI will help us move forward in that regard. We talk about how to manage things like IPMNs or incidental cystic pancreatic lesions, particularly those under three sonometers. We'll talk a little bit about some of the latest recommendations as to how these lesions should be followed. And then we'll talk about some of the incidental pancreatic cancers or cystic islet cell tumors, or cystic adenocarcinomas. But again, frequency is less common. The original article we published, 2.6%, but that was on 16 slice CT. Remember, the better the CT scanner, the more likely you are to see cysts. That's both good, obviously, and also bad. And I mentioned about MR. This is an old article from 20 years ago, 20%. I've seen recent articles. They say 50% of patients have small pancreatic cysts. Now, when you talk about a pseudocyst, that was the cyst we always spoke about. Well-defined compresses adjacent structures, most common in the lesser sac or anterior pararenal spaces. You'll often see peripancreatic stranding. You'll often see changes within the gland consistent with pancreatitis and clinical history usually is indeed very helpful. We talk about peripancreatic fluid collections, again, well-defined wall, usually develop about a month or so after onset of symptoms. 10 to 20% of patients with pancreatitis will get pseudocysts. The most of them will resolve over time. About a quarter of them can result in pain or infection, but their presentation typically comes with a clinical history And from a perspective of having a difficult cystic pancreatic lesion, that usually is not going to be the case. Again, locations, lesser sac, left anterior pararenal space, right anterior pararenal space, and we know that pseudocysts can track anywhere. They can track as high as the posterior mediastinum and as low as the patient's scrotum. Now we talk about pancreatic pseudocysts and here's just some nice examples well-defined lesion in the head of the pancreas you can see it on the axials and on the 3d volume rendering again with cystic pancreatic lesions occasionally you might see calcifications when it's related to pancreatitis because often patients will have both acute and chronic pancreatitis but you can see without a history it just looks like a cystic lesion in the three sonometer range so you need to be very careful This case, on the other hand, with a large cystic lesion pushing on the stomach, pushing on the pancreas, that's a much easier call of pancreatitis, particularly with some of the inflammation tracking near the left anterior pararenal space. So let's get down to things like IPMNs. They usually occur in an older population and a bit more common in men. The key is the pancreatic duct. Most IPMNs can be shown to connect with the pancreatic duct and we can classify them as main duct, side branch, or mixed type. What's important to recognize main duct IPMNs are treated more aggressively because they have a high incidence of cancer. Most of the side branch IPMNs are going to be benign. Here I say that a main duct of over a centimeter is suggestive of a main duct IPMN I think these days we probably begin to worry if things get above seven or eight millimeters. And again, the concern for malignancy with main duct IPMNs, which will often lead us to surgery. Some of the predictors of IPMNs for malignancy, uh, it includes things like lesion size, and typically what was always said was the Tanaka criteria, that if things were over three centimeters, you would then have to resect them. We talk about interval growth, anything above two millimeters a year is concerning. We talk about mural nodules as concerning for malignancy, particularly enhancing mural nodules. We talk about thick septations, particularly when they're enhancing, being of concern. And then of course, if patients have have clinical symptoms of abdominal pain or unexplained bouts of pancreatitis, we're always worried that that lesion is a high potential for being high-grade dysplasia or malignancy. So those are some of the key things we'll be looking at. And again, this is from Ralph Rubin, but the whole idea of what happens, that we have a normal duct, we have this panin, which can lead to pancreatic duct adenocarcinoma, or IPMNs or MCNs, which also over time can lead to adenocarcinoma. Again, as I mentioned, all MCNs are treated as if they're malignant. The patients will get surgery. It's the IPMNs that tend to be the biggest challenge. And again, how we deal with these lesions is something that we're constantly looking at. Simple examples. One centimeter or so cystic lesion body of pancreas, well defined. If you had more images, you probably would see it communicating with the pancreatic duct. That's an IPMN. What do you do with that lesion? You're not going to resect it. Even in a patient with a high family history of pancreatic cancer, what you're going to do is look very carefully and follow very carefully. What about this case? Here I'm showing you a lesion in the uncinate, in the body, in the tail. Many patients have multiple IPMNs. If you resect one of them, you're still at high risk from the other lesions. How do you manage these patients? How do you follow these patients? Indeed, very challenging and again with multiple IPMNs like this case we look carefully and see the lesion that is most concerning to us and typically follow that lesion. Another example, incidental cystic lesion pancreatic head. Here it's not as sharp as we would like. Maybe there's thin septations. What do you do with this lesion is three centimeters or so in size. There might be a thickened wall. These are the ones that end up with surgery, but the majority of patients are gonna have low-grade dysplasia or no dysplasia at all. So it's very, very challenging for us. Work is being done to study cyst fluid. If you did EUS and you sampled the fluid, there's work by Bert Vogelstein, for example, that shows that you could predict which lesions are benign and don't need follow-up, and which are concerning and either need resection or close follow-up. And perhaps that's going to be the way we do things. But again, having to tap the fluid, that means you have an EUS that's invasive, it's expensive, it has complications. We need something a lot simpler. And of course, we hope that that's going to be AI. And of course, in this case, when you finally operate on the patient, it's low-grade dysplasia, so probably this patient did not need surgery. Now patient management with IPMNs, follow up with CT or MR, endoscopic ultrasound where you can do fluid sampling, and of course surgery. Now trying to figure out what to do has been controversial. This is the 2017 revision from the ACR of management of incidental pancreatic cysts. The first thing you realize is when you start looking, it's pretty complicated. They divide things into category, under 1.5 cm, 1.5 to 2.5, greater than 2.5 patients age over 80. What do they recommend? For most patients, we recommend a 9 to 10-year follow-up terminating at age 80. Okay, You can see, even if you reach 10 years, it doesn't mean the patient has no risk. So do you need to follow somebody for the rest of their lives? This is really the challenge. And here's the, uh, the way it looks at things. You can see the chart under 2.5 or over 2.5. You could see the charts that are involved. You can see that every little lesion under 1.5, look at the chart, age, growth, appearance, 1.5 to 2.5. Again, what do you do with all of these patients? over 2.5 and as I like to say when you have too many charts and too many boxes it means you really don't have a real answer. Now this article by Megabo and Alex is no one better than Alec but he's trying to figure out what to do in a very complicated process where there really is no answer. Now I was on a conference call the other day with I will mention the group but again there was a meeting on IPMNs And two of the big groups in the U.S. say basically they follow for three years and they stop following. Now again, that's really not a good answer because people will say, well, you can develop a malignancy up to 10 years. And then if you wait 10 years, you can deliver, you can um, have something after 10 years. So again, there's so many different uh, strategies. Your hospital may have a strategy. Your surgeon may have a strategy. Your GI person may have a strategy. I think it's important within your own institution to have a very specific strategy for yourselves, but you can see it's very problematic. Now, Alec made five points in their algorithm. All incidental cysts should be presumed mucinous unless the cyst has definite features of an alternative histology like a serous adenoma, or has been proven by aspiration not to be mucinous. Such presumed mucinous cysts should be followed or considered for surgery. Again, 10-year follow-up. There really is 10-year minimum. Number two, CIS size directs our follow-up or intervention. Again, under 1.5, 1.5 to 2.5, over 2.5. Now, I will admit that people typically worry at 3. The Sendai criteria are typically over 3, but that's not a magic number. Number three, because flowcharts apply to a range of sizes, you may have to switch paradigms. If you have a lesion that's 1.5 and then it grows and now it's 1.8, you'll change which paradigm you actually will have to follow. So again, this is kind of challenging. Development of worrisome features or high-risk stigmata should prompt EUS with biopsy or surgical consultation. And again, once you have nodularity, thick septations, that patient is probably gonna have the lesion resected. But again, when you look at some large series, only 40% of patients who finally have surgery actually needed the surgery. Another point, comparison with prior imaging studies is crucial, and that is probably the most important thing to remind people. If a lesion doesn't change in size and appearance, it's probably not gonna be aggressive and you can simply continue to follow it. And so look really hard for prior studies. Now, we've done a lot of work at Hopkins. We have a cyst clinic. Many of you are in big institutions that have cyst clinics. It's radiology, it's pathology, it's surgery, it's GI. And when we look at patients, we have a reasonable approach, but compared to the outside, all referrals come in we altered the management of a third of patients assessed in the clinic. Surgery was recommended in under 10% of cases, although no further follow-up was required in just under 2%. None of the patients in whom the recommendations was changed from surgery to surveillance, developed evidence of malignancy during follow-up. So it shows that we essentially downstaged, maybe that's the wrong word, but that's what's really happening. And we've been very successful. Now, As we leave the world of IPMNs, an important thing to remember is if we can recognize what a lesion is that is not an IPMN, that it's a cirrhosis adenoma, that's fantastic because cirrhosis adenomas are benign. They don't need surgery. They sometimes do get surgery because you're not certain what they are. And they sometimes do get surgery because they get so large they can cause gastric outlet obstruction or abdominal pain. So they account for 20% of primary cystic pancreatic neoplasms. They're always benign and classically described as a multilocular cystic mass with central stellate scar and calcifications. Now it's very important to remember with serous adenomas that classic cystic lesion with that central scar and calcification is fairly infrequent. There's so many different appearances, and I see them all the time. And in fact, probably sometime later this year, I'm going to give you a talk on the many appearances of serous adenoma. But let's look at it somewhat more carefully. More common in middle-aged and older women, usually discovered incidentally, but occasionally patients have abdominal pain, mass, or rarely jaundice. Typical appearance, multiple cysts with thin septations, central scar with central coarse calcifications, A less common appearance is an oligocystic variety, which is simply a cyst, hard to distinguish from MCN or even an IPMN. These cysts, if you sample them, contain glycogen but no mucin, which makes it easy to diagnose. An average age is 68. Three types, polycystic, honeycomb, and oligocystic. And we'll look at some examples. The polycystic is the most common, about 70% of cases. Central scar is not uncommon. Honeycomb pattern is the second most common in about 10% of cases with numerous cysts, clusters of small cysts under a sonometer. And then of course the oligocystic, less than 10% and sometimes the most challenging of cases. Classic example, large cystic lesion, enhancement. Now, interestingly on the arterial phase, You often don't separate the cystic components as well as you do on the venous phase. You can see here, as we go to venous phase, the septations are better seen. The size of the lesion, there's no pancreatic duct dilatation, though occasionally you can have pancreatic duct dilatation. And you can see on venous phase imaging, particularly on the 3D maps, the multiple cystic lesions. Another example, large mass, head of pancreas over 12 cm. Again cystic solid you notice the septations often the hepatic artery is draped around the lesion you can see vascularity in the lesion which at times could confuse you make you concerned for malignancy but you can see that draping of the vessel really really nicely showing you that draping that's in a sense classic for serous deadenoma You can see as you go to venous phase, the cystic component of the lesion is better defined. In this case, the patient has a dilated pancreatic duct. People say you don't get dilated pancreatic ducts with cirrhosis adenoma, but that, in fact, is not the case. Another example, the lesions almost present at times as right lower quadrant masses because they're so large coming off the pancreatic head, they kind of flop downward. Again, multiple septations shown. You could see it nicely as we narrow the window. So large cystic lesion with septations, very, very classic for cyst adenoma. And here it is on the cinematic rendering, which nicely accentuates the septations. The honeycomb pattern, again, we mentioned multiple tiny cysts. Again, very, very important. Often you'll see some enhancement. Often you will see calcification. Here's a good example, again, to make the point that the multiple tiny cysts are better seen on the venous than the arterial phase imaging. Despite the size of the lesions, we typically do not have common duct or pancreatic duct dilatation, very nicely shown here as well. But we can see scalloping of the portal vein, and I've even seen a case of portal vein occlusion. Another example of cirrhosis adenoma Differential enhancement within the lesion, multiple cystic components, spotty central calcifications. And here you very nicely see the scalloping of the patient's portal vein and SMV. Another example, cystic lesion head of pancreas, septations, thickened septations perhaps. Again, calcifications, though they're very spotty and some compression and stretching of the patient's portal vein. We mentioned the oligocystic being, at times, the most challenging, and the fact is that it can be confused with MCNs or IPMNs, particularly when you have dilated pancreatic duct. But I should mention that MCNs typically do not have dilated pancreatic duct, so they can be confused with IPMNs. Here's a good example. Cystic lesion by the tail of the pancreas MCN is a thought, a very large IPMN, even a a lymphoepithelial cyst would be considered. In fact, in this case, it's almost hard to connect it to the pancreas, but that was a serous cyst adenoma. The solid pattern, it's interesting, solid patterns are rare, we have a few cases, they enhance significantly and the solid serous cyst adenomas can look identical to neuroendocrine tumors. Here's a nice one coming off the tail of the pancreas. Again, looks very much like a neuroendocrine tumor, hypervascular solid mass. These lesions do wash out and perhaps at times they wash out faster than a typical neuroendocrine tumor. And as you can see here, there's some cystic components that perhaps make you think about cirrhosis adenoma. Now management, if you can make the diagnosis It's basically, that's it. They're benign lesions. We note that patients sometimes are symptomatic and will get surgery, even though it's a benign lesion. So we really need to be able to recognize them. The challenge of course is, as I mentioned, there's a range of different appearances. It can be very tricky at times. It can be confused with lesions like mucinous tumors, which need to be resected. Speaking of mucinous tumors, what about them? Well, I think we've used up our time for the first lecture, and let's take a break and let's come back and discuss mucinous cystic neoplasms of the pancreas. See you in a couple minutes. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.